Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode, and I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In today's episode, we're going to be following up on last week's episode 319, A Closer Look. In this episode, we were able to break down all of the witness statements and compare them to known facts and run background searches on addresses and create what seems to be a pretty tangible timeline for Kiao. We discussed the possibility of the knife belonging to her, we determined which direction she was walking, there was just a lot covered this week, and Mike, I imagine it probably generated a lot of questions. Yeah, the questions are a little all over the place, but I definitely searched through all the social media that we got this week, and there's some pretty good stuff here, so I can't wait to get into it. Awesome, and real quick, before we get started on that, I do want to point out to everybody, and most of you probably have already realized this, the Truth and Justice podcast is now back on iTunes, so thank you all very much for all of your support. It made all the difference in the world, especially a lot of you retweeting and tweeting to Apple had some listeners that jumped in with some professional help, which we'll hear about a little bit more on Sunday. But thank you very much for all of your engagement and support. And we are back on iTunes. Everything's back to normal, other than we've lost our ranking from being off the charts for that long. So if any of you wouldn't mind, please take a few minutes just to go on iTunes and give us a new rating and review. That'll help boost us back up into those rankings where we're visible again. And we can get more listeners to jump in and listen to these men's stories. Other than that, Mike, I think we're ready to go. Awesome. Let's jump right in. First, last weekend, listeners got together and actually went to the crime scene in Pleasant Grove to talk thoughts and theories. There was some stuff on social media. Some listeners actually made Facebook Live videos and posted them, and that was really neat. Uh, there was actually a healthy turnout, too. I think it was like 15 people. Yeah, I actually didn't know this was even happening until after the fact. But yeah, I saw some photos, and as you'll hear on the Sunday's episode, I actually spoke to two of the people that were involved in that meetup. Uh, we interviewed them for this Sunday's episode that's coming up. But yeah, I think they said there was somewhere between 10 and 18 people. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially for something that you're not even a part of. Yeah, it's it's really true crowdsourcing at the grassroots level. I mean, these are people that have been studying the case and working on the case and have you know made connections through the fan page and then have kind of made friends, these strangers from not just around the area, but around the country. I think even, I think Fast Fingers Jennifer even flew down there from New York. Yeah. And to kind of go over some things, and it, it seemed like it was a time more of just just kind of bonding, although they did spend some time in the crime scene walking around. Uh, I know Paul Day, who we talked to on Sunday, was kind of trying to lay out where the Kiel's body might have been found based on the information he has and the work he's been doing. 
Yeah, I think it's just, it's just really neat. I think I posted on the discussion page that when I saw the photo that just how cool was that? That, you know, these, the, the, the podcast has united this group of people to go and, and, you know, take a step further and go, go take a look and actually meet each other face to face. Yeah. And I remember when I talked to you about it, I thought it was a little strange that this group would get together again without you being there. And I think you said something along the lines of this is where you wanted the crowdsourcing thing to go. Yeah, that was for me, it was just watching things come to fruition. You know, that was my vision for the Truth and Justice podcast from the very beginning. Once we we started doing these real crowdsourced investigations, you know, we've kind of adapted over time. But, you know, but that's what I was always hoping would happen is that listeners would step up and, you know, and still keep in communication with us and let's all work as one united force. But to start truly investigating this stuff, you know, in our discussion here on Sunday, you hear the term camps come out. You know, so-and-so was in this camp or this camp as far as who they think did it. Sure. And I, I think I mentioned in that interview that you'll hear Sunday, like, how cool is that, that this movement and this investigation has gained so much interest that there are camps? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it really is. So uh, what do we, I know you said you have a lot of questions for us to get through today. Yeah, let's go right to the fan page. There was quite a bit of discussion this week. And to start things off, I want to read you something from listener Coco. Coco writes, I'm struggling with the timeline and how the possible abduction with a car would fit into that. I imagine, even if you got the plan to kill somebody, it would be very fast to do it in two to five minutes, considering all the wounds. I can't see how someone wanted to abduct her, and then it went down in just so little time. What are your thoughts here, Bob? I think that when we're looking at it clinically, right, so we're looking at how many wounds and taking a deep examination into each wound, it seems improbable that this thing could happen in such a short period of time. Right. But the reality of it is, I think that it could easily, I I think the entire attack, and this is a big if, if there was a car abduction, let's say Sylvia's, uh, for example, that Sylvia's recollection, what she had heard is correct, uh, that she was abducted by a car, into a car up by Gradient Apache, they peeled around the corner, let her out, and then were, as she put it, brutalizing her, what I would say would be probably stabbing her as she's crawling away. They jump back in the car and leave. I would say all of that could happen in less than 90 seconds, mm-hmm. easily. It just, you know, the, the wounds are not, when I think she had said something about, Coco had said that that many wounds, how could it happen in that short a period of time? Right. But, I mean, literally, I mean, if you take a knife and you could, she had, I think, 19 stab wounds off the top of my head total. Yeah. That could be done in 10 seconds. At a slow pace, 19 seconds, you know, one stab per second. Uh, so I, especially if you add two to three attackers in there, possibly. So some of them are happening simultaneously. I think, you know, within 90 seconds, they could grab her, put her in a car, kick her out, stab her, jump back in the car and drive away. Certainly within five minutes. Absolutely. Sure. Okay. And then Amy writes to us, if Kia were to sense danger from a group she passed on one of her trips around the school, she could have removed her keys from the handkerchief in order to hold a key like a weapon secured between her fingers and a fist, like women are taught to do in self-defense classes. If that's the case, the keys could possibly have the killer's DNA on them if she tried to swipe at them during the initial attack. Do you have anything to say about this, Bob? Yeah, I think that there certainly, if that was the case, there certainly would be the killer's DNA on the keys. And I think that's certainly plausible. My only issue with it is it would seem like if she did get the keys, and what she's referring to here is they'll put the entire wad of keys in the palm of their hand, ball a fist around it to where a few of the keys be poking out between the fingers, sure. almost like brass knuckles, only sharp with keys. You know, that grip is, that's hard to break that grip. I would expect the keys to maybe still be in her hand. But then again, if she did have them like that and took a swipe at the killer, that would probably be the first thing that the killer would go after, try to get control of. We, we, we talk a lot about control in an instance or an incident like this, 
And it's not even planned control. It's, it, we're just talking about the behavior of an offender when, you know, the first thing they're doing is they've got their mission in mind. I'm going to brutalize this woman. I'm going to do whatever. But as things present themselves, uh, th- they start losing control. So she comes at them with some sharp keys immediately without thinking twice about it. They're going to try to control that hand, control those keys. So I think that that is a distinct possibility for sure that uh, she could have been holding the keys that way. And if she had, they very likely would have the killer's DNA on them. Okay, next we're going to talk about the butcher knife. Really quick, I saw some discussion about our actual use of the term butcher knife. Did you see that on the fan page? Uh, I, it sounds familiar. Remind me. Uh, we had a listener comparing what is commonly referred to, referred to as a butcher knife to uh, oh, a chef a knife. chef knife. That's right. right. Yeah. And there was a little confusion there. But I think the takeaway from it is that butcher knife is actually, it's a pretty vague term, right? I think so, and I and I honestly don't know the difference. I'll, I'll tell you from the photos of the knife. For those of you that haven't looked on the the case documents, imagine a knife with a blade that's about nine inches long. It's straight on the top. It's like a big triangle, right? So straight on the top, uh, and towards the hilt, it's about an inch and a half thick, and it obviously goes to a point at the other end. That's what. So whether that's a butcher knife, a chef's knife, whatever, whatever the case may be, that that was the type of knife it was. Right. And then going further into that, listener Keith writes to us, I don't believe that a kitchen butcher knife would be typical of a weapon that a gang would carry around, but might be something that Kia would just have carried, because that's all she had available. I also think it's possible that she kept it in her hand, but concealed it, directing the blade up her sleeve. Killers or gang members would typically carry switchblades or pocket knives, not kitchen knives. I also don't believe that the killers would have left one of their own weapons at the murder scene purposefully and after wiping it down. It's more plausible to me that it was Kia's knife. I tend to agree, uh, actually. You know, we look at the fact, you know, we pointed out in the last episode, and really a lot of what we're trying to do or what I'm trying to do here is get across to people. Like, we can't make assumptions. You know, so so we we, we look at possibilities and hypothesis, but we, we can't say this did happen. So we can't say that is her knife or it is not her knife. And the fact of the matter is we don't really know that for certain one way or the other. But with all that being said... I think that Keith here is exactly right. I mean, if if a, a gang of, whether it be a gang of hoodlums or an actual street gang or even uh, the the serial rapist Kenneth Ray Williams planning an attack, I don't think they grab the giant nine-inch long butcher knife or chef's knife or whatever to do it. I think it's much more like, you know, a switch, switchblade just reminds me like the sharks and the jets. Uh, but it is early 90s, that's possible. But I think a small or bladed knife for certain uh, would be more likely for them to carry. But I do think it's distinctly possible that Kiao did have the knife and it did end up getting used against her. That happens so many times when people will take a weapon, gun, or knife for protection and they end up getting stabbed or shot with their own weapon. Sure. Um, in that case, it could have been, you know, because again, going back to the control we just talked about with the keys. You know, if if she's flailing around, you're looking, you're subconsciously looking, where is danger coming from? She's wielding an 8-inch or 9-inch knife. So I'm going to grab that arm. I'm going to get a hold of that knife. And then maybe they just didn't want to take, you know, anything from her with them. So they threw it. But I, I still think there's a distinct possibility that that knife was, that they quickly wiped that knife down because their fingerprints were probably on it, mm-hmm. uh, which could mean there's also their DNA on it. Sure. Uh, which is, you know, that's the beautiful thing about touch DNA is it would be really nice in 2017 to run that knife back through uh, a DNA test and and find the true killer's DNA on it. Yeah, and along those lines, listener Richard explains why there might not be blood on the knife, saying wiping down the knife to remove fingerprints would also explain the lack of blood. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
And then he goes on to say, in regards to the lack of blood drops, if Kia was lying across the laps of the perpetrators in the Camaro where she was stabbed and then tossed or pulled out of the car where she crawled, there would have not been an instance where she was upright to cause blood drops onto her shoes or pants. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that, you know, I don't necessarily know that that's how that happened. You know, that, that it even was a Camaro or, you know, any of that or, you know, and, and her being stabbed inside the car. Whether or not that happened, I, I personally, I think it's probably more likely that if she was in a car, the stabbing didn't start till she was back out. Mm-hmm. But, Just because of like the space. Yeah, the proximity were, yeah. of all that, you know, and, you know, it could be. You know, get her out of here, get her out of here. And then they're like, well, she's identified us. Go just kill her. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, that's just all speculative. So it doesn't really matter. But as far as um, forensically what he's saying, yeah, it's absolutely true. If she was stabbed inside the car, laying across the lap and it was thrown out, she was never standing upright. It still would. It still could explain why there's no blood drops on her shoes. Sure. Okay. And then we have this from listener Kathy. From what I understand from the testimony of Daniel Cannon, the physical evidence technician, when asked by the prosecution about the prints, he stated nothing. But when it was the defense's turn to question him, they asked, you testified that you processed the knife and the state's exhibit photos for fingerprints. Do I understand there was nothing comparable that could be obtained from the fingerprint taken off of that knife? The answer was, that's correct. So according to the defense, there was a fingerprint lifted, but there was nothing comparable. But to who? Jesse? Kiao? It doesn't say. Also, before you answer this, Bob, there was an email from listener Donna. Donna writes, what exactly was in the report and or testified to? And she's talking about Daniel Cannon's testimony here. Nothing developed at processing or no usable prints found? I don't know how familiar you are with the difference. There can be prints developed, but when an analyst looks at that print, they may determine that there are not enough remaining identifiable features to be compared. Okay, so I actually had to hit pause right there and go verify this in that trial transcript because uh, what Kathy just pointed out here is something that, that I had missed. Uh, and it's because there's conflicts... I had in my mind a statement from uh, D.A. Watts's testimony where he was asked a very similar question, and and it was, there was nothing comparable found on the knife, and he said no. And so I think I had attributed that to Daniel Cannon, but after Kathy pointed that out, I just looked, and that's her quote is exactly right. The defense says there's nothing comparable on the print that was pulled off the knife. So this is new information. To, I mean, it's not new information. It's just newly discovered by me, thanks to Kathy that there was, in fact, a fingerprint. And it's funny because I actually was speaking with Allison Clayton just today uh, about the case, and we were talking about, you know, we're always having these kind of meetings, and I'm telling her these are things you should look for if you can find them to have them tested. And we just had the conversation about the knife, and I was asking her to do some checking and see if she can find out if there were ever any fingerprints because it was unclear in D.A. Watts's testimony, uh, which I was attributing to Daniel Cannon. So, this is really good to know. I will pass this along to Allison from what Kathy found that we do know there was, in fact, one fingerprint. Regarding what Donna said, yes, I know there's you know, nothing comparable could mean that it was didn't have enough points on the print. There's a lot of things that could mean or it wasn't comparable to Kiao or Jesse or something like that. You know, this is back before APHIS, so it's not like it was run through a database, which would be awesome if we had a good print that didn't match Kiao's that we could now maybe get the CIU to run through APHIS. So uh, I, I guess time will tell. I, I do not have the source document, Daniel Cannon's note, uh, actual report, but that should be in the open records request that's on its way from Dallas PD. I mean, he was a Dallas cop. It's a Dallas PD report that if it wasn't used at trial and it wasn't in the DA's file, then it should still be in the police file. So hopefully uh, Kathy and Donna will have the answer to that next week when we return. 
But thank you very much for for pointing that out because that is that was definitely something that I had missed or or misconstrued as somebody else's testimony. So good work, both of you. Also, we have an email here from listener Jen discussing the investigation of the crime scene. She writes, WTF, the police never went back to get statements from the neighbors who could have seen something. One single picture of the area from her body potentially only even searched one side of the street. If you know this woman walks the block, why wouldn't you search the whole block? The police work, or lack thereof, on this case is mind-boggling. Heavy caseload or not, some of these things just seem like no-brainers. I just can't wrap my mind around how you let these critical inquiries slip through the cracks. Any thoughts, Bob? Uh, I'm equally as disgusted. Yeah. There's no excuse for this whatsoever. I think, based on the investigation that we have, that the theory on their on the case for Royster on that day, yeah. and Marco and probably Daniel Cannon, was that the attack happened right there where she was found. And possibly, for some reason, they spent a lot more energy searching south of her as far as the, the doors they were knocking on uh-huh. than they did north. You know? Why do you think that is? I, I don't know what would indicate to them that she came from that way. I, I I have no idea. And it makes me wonder, you know, did they was there more to conversations with Principal Tucky or Randy Poteet? We're still, by the way, trying to get a hold of Randy Poteet. Uh, he hasn't returned our calls yet, but... Maybe he said something to investigators like he saw her moments before that walking from the south. I guess. I don't know. But we know she was walking the other way. Right. I, I don't know. But we, we see that they only knocked on. Royster knocked on the two doors to the north of Stanbury's house. And that was it. And nobody came to the door and it never went back. But he knocked on, I think, three, four, five, six doors to the south. Uh-huh. And talked to a few people down there. And I don't know if he got distracted because people actually came to the door down there. But, of course, they saw nothing. Which is because, I, in my opinion, the the whole thing happened the other direction from there. I I I have no answer other than just to voice my mutual frustration and and just the shoddiness of the investigation to be pigeonholed into a theory so much that you don't even look. I, I mean, the only people that could have possibly had a view of what happened to her are those houses on Mark Street. I mean, they should have just never stopped every every single. And and this is not something that happened at two o'clock in the morning. It happened at a very busy time in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, right. on a weekday. Yeah. People are getting up. They're going to work. They're having coffee. They're eating breakfast. It's the idea that no one in any of those houses on Mark Street with their backyards facing the freaking crime scene is ridiculous that they wouldn't have put that effort in. Anyway, yeah, so, yeah, I'm pissed too. All right, let's take a break here and hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get right back into the social media. Sounds good. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, welcome back from our break. This week, you added a graphic to the website of an aerial photo of the crime scene, which listeners found very helpful when following your breakdown on the podcast. Looking at the graphic you made for the website, listener Sandra said, the graphic really does help and wants to know where the car was seen on the school grounds. Yeah, so and I, I didn't put a few of those details on there because I didn't want to clutter the graphic because uh, that's actually, I think, in a previous graphic that I'd created. Uh, but the answer to that is the car, as far as where Jesse James Wendell and Judy Gonzalez saw the abduction, I assume is what she's talking about, would be on the top of that graphic on Grady Lane between Apache and September, like right there where you'll see that block of woods there. It'd be the northeast corner or the top right-hand corner of that graphic. Okay, and then just to clear something else up, you answered this on the fan page, but I want to bring it up here for anyone else who might be wondering. Listener Richard writes, great visual aid, guys. The podcast mentions that 131 is north of Danny Stanberry at 133, yet there is no 131 on the diagram. Which is correct, the diagram or the podcast? Yeah, so the issue was I created the outline for the podcast and my notes to record the podcast based off of the information in the police reports. However, then when I made the graphic, I went back and was looking at property search records and things to make sure I got everything put in the accurate position and found out that when I went back and looked at the property records, there is no 131 marks, at least not right now. And we'll hear a little bit more about this on Sunday because listener Paul Day had a little more information about what properties existed back in 1991. I'm going to hit pause for a second. Okay, I am back from hitting pause. Because as we were sitting here, Mike and I just looked at each other, remembered that uh, several months back when we were in Dallas, right? we drove down the street and I asked Mike to write down every single current address on Mark Street, which is much better than any online resource because we literally had eyes on them. So I'm going to need to update the graphic even further, but I'm going I'm to read you off of Mike's handwritten note right here. So starting at Stanbury's house and going north, Stanbury's was 133, then there's 129, 125, 121. 115, 111, 105. So that's north of Stanbury's house, one, two, three, four, five, six houses north of Stanbury's house. And these are all addresses with houses on the lots. And Mike, do you remember? I don't remember any of them being looking like really new houses. No, but I do remember you stopped at two of them. Well, I stopped at several of them and knocked on the door. There was the one where the people really weren't real happy to see me. Right, and which houses were those? There was two houses there where there there were neighbors in the yard at the same time, and you stopped them both. <laughs> it was Danny Stanbury's house. That was Stanbury. I didn't realize at the time because we didn't have Stanbury's address at that point. Right. I was just judging based on the photos, mm-hmm. and I just went to that house and asked them if they knew anything. And a couple of them didn't speak English. The ones that did did not want to talk to me. And as you said, I looked like a retired cop. Definitely in your flannel with your aviator specs on and with you too. Yeah, and your vest. Whoa, hey, you guys, wait. Both of you. Stop right there. I did the finger pointing thing. It really threw them off. Yeah. Uh, but so anyway, uh, back to the to where we were at. As of now, there's Danny Stanbury's house, and there are six addresses, and they are 129, 125, 121, 115, 111, and 105 Mark Street that all face September Road. Uh, however, as you'll hear in Sunday's episode, Paul Day said that he believes that two of those were vacant lots back then, but we'll have to do some verification on that. But yeah, so the graphic is off. So the numbers I put on the graphic were all because that's what Royster wrote in his report. But what we found is there's a lot of mistakes in Royster's report, which you'll hear a little bit more about also on Sunday. You're getting the idea that maybe I've already recorded Sunday's episode before we did the Friday follow-up this week. 
And that's due to the fact that uh, also a little fun fact for any of you that happen to be in New Orleans this weekend, uh, any of you that happen to be Beachbody coaches, the Beachbody Summit is in New Orleans. And I will be there along with Becky. Started, actually, Friday morning when this drops at 6 a.m., I will be in a workout with Sean T in New Orleans. So if you're going to be around town over the weekend, hit me up on Twitter. Maybe we'll try to arrange some kind of a meetup or at least, you know, catch up and we can. I'd love to meet anybody that I can while we're there. Anyway, back to the point at hand. Yes, that's why there are conflicts in the crime scene diagram. The graphic that I had made is because the property records don't match the police report. Okay, that's it for social media. Let's get to our voicemails. This first one comes from Liz in California. This is Liz in California, and um, I just finished listening to the episode. You guys are doing a really great job. Um, thanks again. I really enjoy listening to you guys. But So I had a comment about the knife, and I thought I heard, or didn't you guys say in our previous early episode, that the husband or son had said that she was had been known to carry a knife with her sometimes? And since it does seem like there was more than one attacker, that could also explain why there was different types of knife wounds, as you noted, like in the autopsy. Because how many times do people have their own weapon used against them? I would imagine even especially with women, probably more often than you would think. I mean, for the killers, it would have just been just another another knife. And if it was their knife, I would think they would have taken it with them. So that's why I think it was hers. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thanks, Liz, for the message. Uh, And to answer your question at the beginning of the message, no, neither Kirby nor Ken ever said that Kiao sometimes carried a knife. They were, in fact, both surprised at the fact that she was carrying a knife. Kenneth specifically. Now, Kenneth had said at one point that Kiao had taken a knife out of the kitchen and had been using it in her sewing room. But he was shocked to find out, both in his police interviews and at trial, he reiterated the fact that he was shocked to know that she was carrying a knife with her when she was killed. And as far as her own knife being used against her, um, as you've probably listened already up to this point, we discussed this in the first segment, and yeah, I think that's a real definite possibility. Okay, this next voicemail comes from Christy in Indiana. Hi, this is Christy from Indiana, and I was just reflecting back on the podcast that I finally got to listen to today, and... I could really see a scenario playing out where you had a group of guys that were heckling her on her walk and, you know, maybe not having truly harmful intentions, but as she walked past them the third time, she said something back to them. They decided to mess with her a little bit, drug her into the car, at which point she fought back somewhat, maybe striking one of them to where it just hurt, and then you have a testosterone-fueled you know, teenager or 19-year-old something that starts to fight back with her, at which point it just becomes almost a gang-fueled rage. They end up throwing her out, letting her go, but that first attacker maybe got hit in the gonads or something, and they're laughing at him. I do recall comments about laughter after the attack. So they're laughing at him because he's in pain, and off they go. So maybe it wasn't an intentional to begin with, and that's why you have that crazy, chaotic crime scene, per se. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Well, thanks for the voicemail, Christy. And it's an interesting theory, and certainly I think it has some weight. I mean, when you're looking at, if we're looking at a group of adolescent, teenager-type kids without a plan, Certainly having more than one adolescent teenager boy in a car is not going to make things better. 
you know, they, they tend to feed off of each other in, I think, what you call a fit of testosterone. Your guess is as good as mine, but certainly what you just described is a scenario that certainly could be plausible. So, uh, but in any case, Christy, thank you so much for calling in and giving us your input. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for writing in and calling in. And as I said on the outside of the show, I want to thank all of you again for all of your support during the iTunes debacle. That's all straightened out now, thanks to you. I would, again, ask for any of you that are able to, to just go into iTunes, take a couple of minutes, leave us, if you like the show, a nice five-star review. That'll help us move us back to where we were, the place where we had earned over two years of our life on iTunes to be in that top 100. Uh, to get us where we're visible again. And as I mentioned, I will be in New Orleans this week. Uh, this is I'm actually recording this on Tuesday afternoon because I'm leaving Wednesday. So uh, if you're going to be in New Orleans, if you live there or you happen to be there for Summit, hit me up and maybe we'll get a chance to meet up. Uh, other than that, I hope you all really enjoy Sunday's episode. It's something very different than what we've ever done before. Whereas, you know, we're really trying to tap into this crowdsourcing, grassroots nature of what we're doing here. And so rather than bring on a, you know, a famous profiler onto the show... We're bringing in two ordinary people just like you and me who have been working on the case. And the episode is kind of a fly-on-the-wall discussion between the three of us. And these are discussions that happen often with listeners along the way. So it's an interesting conversation. and hope you all enjoyed it. And I'll see you next week. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Executive producer is Mike Bussing. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I'll thank Chris Brinkley for designing and creating our website. Thank you to Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn for transcribing the episodes. And thank you to Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Design for creating our Friday follow-up logo. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. There's a lot of ways to support us, as we mentioned. You can leave us an iTunes review. And don't forget that we do actually have a Patreon page. I don't talk about it very often, but if you go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice, you can pledge a monthly donation from $1 on up as high as you want to go. And without having all the details right now, I would encourage and, and hope that any of you that are able to and want to, to go ahead and go on to Patreon to support us, because we're going to have some DNA testing going on very soon in both Ed and Jesse's case. And I've spoken with Allison, and the Innocence Project is definitely going to need our help to help fund that. So again, that's patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can pledge as little as $1 a month, and every little bit helps. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page. You can follow along the discussion at the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page on Facebook. Send us a voicemail to 269-224-2833, or you can follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Sorry. How, how, how did you just snap yourself with your... I was trying headphones. to itch my ear and my headphone came <laughs> sliding off and hit me in the back of the head. <laughs> anyway, didn't mean to break up your train of thought there. All right. I'm with it. I'm good. I'm good. Stop itching your ear. Oh, God. It's so bad. <laughs> All right. Got the ear mites from the dog. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that ORR should be a quick read, huh? <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, was it? Trying to turn over a new leaf, Mike, and not say a bunch of swear words on the podcast. You know, I, I, that'd be a good thing, Bob. That'd be a great <laughs> thing. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> I sound like an ogre on the podcast. I don't think you sound like an ogre on the podcast. All right. Ogres have layers. I don't have very many layers. Like a parfait. I don't know what a parfait is, Bob. I'm just kidding. I do. They're really good. <laughs> no. I, love, I love like a, a fruit yogurt parfait. I, I was trying to do a Shrek thing. Like we're like yeah. when I said ogres have layers. Did uh, Eddie Murphy, the donkey, make a reference to parfait in that movie? Yeah, the donkey. And then and then and then Shrek, like Shrek was food. saying that they had layers like onions. Mm. And then donkey says, like a parfait. Yeah. No, not like a parfait. I can tell you've been raising some young kids. Like, you know, I, I mean, I, you were a young kid when Shrek came out. I don't know about that. Came out in 1999. <laughs> You're making that up. <laughs> I mean, that's a, actually, now that I think about it, it's probably a pretty safe guess. But yeah. Anyway. Today's episode is sponsored in part. Well, Me, for example, I'm not a big fan of fish. So why is. Huh, didn't even need to copy or nothing. You memorized it. Nailed it. Yeah, nailed right. it. Right. I'm so happy. Solid. I'm so glad that happened. Let's nix your line and do mine. Okay, go no, ahead. I'm joking. <laughs> Okay. Five seconds of silence, right y'all. <laughs> kill you. I will kill you. Kill you. It's like the uh, the little puppet. Mm-hmm. What's that guy's name? Jeff Dunham? Oh, yeah. Jeff Dunham. I kill you. I kill you. Anyway. All right. Welcome back from our break. Wasn't much of a break for me. I had to read an ad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's not even just funny. Like, you know? It's like, it's not, yeah. you know, it's like the process is just so stalled. Leave, leave your line. Completely. I can't even get further if I wanted to right this, now. This never happens, but I'm going to say leave your line. Nick's my line. And then really? I'll do take two on my line. Are you sure? Yeah. This has never happened before. This is unprecedented. Yeah. Nick's y- my line. Your line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My line. Okay. You got it. That's all you had to say? So let's... <laughs> Shit. That's all you had to say. You're going to regret that so bad. <laughs> that one right there. <laughs> you know what that's from Pulp Fiction. Look at the big brains on Brad. Also Pulp Fiction. Or was it Brett? It was Brad. It was both. Mm-mm. Yeah. His name's Brad. They called him Brett and Brad in the scene. Mm, and the, we got to look at the credits then to find out for sure. No, that won't do it. Because he's probably listed under one of the two names. Right. But if he's listed under your name, then I can't. I have no defense. But if they get if Samuel L. Jackson read the line wrong, and it's only in the final print and not in the credits, mm. then we'll have to go back to the source to the to the scene itself. Is there any chance we could finish uh, this show? <laughs> Man, a few words, Mike. I really am. <laughs> but everyone knows that by now. 